This is episode three, Beginners Hand Lettering Tools and Equipment, part two. Welcome to the Hand Lettering Podcast. I'm Tan Love, hand lettering artist with a degree in art and design, and more than 10 years experience specialising in pencil illustrations. I write and create for letteringtutorial.com, a place to find tutorials, interviews, resources and more. Join me as I talk about all things lettering. Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Hand Lettering Podcast. I'm going to start this episode by mentioning that I'm a little bit coldy at the moment, so I do apologise if my voice goes a bit scratchy throughout the podcast, uh, or if you hear the occasional sniffle. Not too bad at the moment, um, but you know when you're in those beginning stages where you can start to feel those horrible symptoms kicking in, I'm kind of there, so <laughs> I do apologise for... Um, any any of that that might work its way into this episode. The other thing I want to mention is that there's some major, major building work going on in the apartment below me. A lot of banging, a lot of drilling. I've hopefully picked kind of a quiet-ish time to record this. I'm hoping the builders are on their lunch break now. <laughs> um, but I do apologise greatly if if there are some slight banging noises or a little bit of weird going on with the audio um, you'll know why I don't know how long they're going to be down there doing stuff for I'm hoping it's just going to be a week or two so by the time the next podcast episode is due to be recorded they'll have uh, finished what they're doing but anyway you know those two things now <laughs> so we can move on since episode two of the podcast went live, I've received some really encouraging feedback again. I think I mentioned in episode two that I'd received some really great feedback since episode one, and <laughs> the same the same's happened again. So that's really great and really really inspiring for me. Uh, it definitely helps drive me forwards and helps me to keep creating new episodes for you. And it's also helping slowly but surely for me to shape future episodes. I do usually mention it at the end of each podcast episode, but if you do want to, please feel free to leave some feedback in either iTunes or Stitcher. If you can leave an honest review there, then that's going to help get that feedback to me another way. And it will also then help other people to find the podcast too, because I think the more reviews something has in iTunes, it can help get found a little bit easier and there's so many podcasts uh, in iTunes and places like that nowadays that it's very easy to get lost um, so feel free to do that if you want to uh, if you're not confident with leaving a review in iTunes you can feel free to just email it directly to me uh, if you want to leave some feedback and you can do that with ask at letteringtutorial.com send it to me, uh, I will probably respond, <laughs> I always usually do. If you listen to episode 2 of the podcast, you'll probably already be aware that the title for episode 2 and 3 are the same, Beginners Hand Lettering Tools and Equipment. If you haven't listened to episode 2, then you probably won't know what actually ended up happening. My original intention was for episode two to just be one standalone episode on tools and equipment. In the end, I had to tack a part one onto it and split the content across two episodes. 
I got about 25-30 minutes into recording and I realised that time was starting to total up and that I was actually only about halfway through talking about good beginners tools and equipment. So I thought rather than carrying on and then the podcast episode totaling about an hour and a half, I would stop where I was and then carry on with the rest of the tools and equipment in this episode, episode three. Uh, Episode two, I talked about paper, pencils, different types of guide paper, rulers and rubbers or erasers, depending where you are located in the world. So if you haven't listened to episode two and you're just joining in on this episode, I definitely recommend listening to episode two as well because it goes hand in hand with this one. It doesn't really matter what order you listen in though, you can start with this one and then go back to episode two, whichever's easiest really. But there's hopefully definitely some good tips in both for you. So in this episode, I'm gonna talk about lettering pens brush pens, calligraphy nibs and pen holders, inks, printers and scanners, and light boxes. So it's quite a lot to cover again. (laughs) Uh, So hopefully you can definitely see why now I split it across the two episodes. Uh, The episode then will move on to the inspiration section as per usual, where I um, I will feature a quote that I've chosen that I think will be inspiring for you that shouldn't be too much of a challenge to letter as a beginner. I'll then move on to a featured lettering artist and a featured piece of work that they've created that's really stood out. So that can help build up um, a good resource for you uh, over time of different lettering artists. Finally, I will move on to some questions to answer that um, are related to hand lettering. So that's what this episode looks like. Starting with hand lettering pens then, there's no right or wrong in terms of what pens you can use when it comes to hand lettering. There's a few different ways you can use pens. So you can essentially, if you've drawn a block piece of illustrative lettering, you can shade that in with a, like maybe a coloured pen. Uh, Sharpie pens, the brand Sharpie, seem to be quite popular for that sort of thing because they come in a really great variety of different colours and you can also get different nib sizes for them as well. So that's one way to use pens when it comes to lettering. You can use pens to straight out write with, kind of brush letter with. Colin Tierney, I think that's how his surname's pronounced, (laughs) Uh, he's a lettering artist and he uses Crayola pens an awful lot for his sort of brush style lettering so it's surprising what you can actually improvise with because those are obviously intended for kids craning (laughs) and he's uh, kind of created a really new use for them. You can also outline lettering or draw lettering out using pens as well. You could use a biro if you wanted to, although that can be a little bit smudgy. Uh, But the most common pen that is used are micron pens. Is it is used? (laughs) Bad grammar there. (laughs) The most common pens you'll find letterers using are micron pens. It's a bit better. These come in a variety of different size tips. They did actually pop up in episode two, 
someone sent in a question about why they are used by so many letterers, which I did my best to answer. Uh, they are very useful, mainly because of the, the size of the, the nib or the tip that you can get on them. You can get a really, really fine tip, which can be great for like very thin outlines, and you can get slightly thicker tips if you're trying to shade an area in, then they can be useful there. But you don't have to use micron pens. There are there are others out there that are similar in terms of tip size or thickness. So it doesn't really matter too much. They do tend to be a good quality pen, which is, as I mentioned in episode two, why they get used a lot. And they use archival ink, which doesn't fade in time. But if you're just starting out and you're just practicing, then that isn't really, <laughs> not really a problem because you probably aren't going to be fussed if you're lettering practice. Paperwork lives for many, many years without fading. Um, so yeah, so they're another option when it comes to lettering pens. You can use slightly thicker, like black ink pens. Again, you can either draw with those. If you're doing illustrative lettering, you can write lettering out with them. You can shade areas of lettering in, add illustrations to your lettering with them. So there's no limit really. <laughs> Just, you know, you whatever you've got lying around the house already, you could probably experiment and do some pretty good lettering with without having to go out of your way to actually buy anything different when it comes to pens. The main thing to be wary of when using pens for lettering is just that some can soak through or bleed, uh, as I mentioned in episode two, I think it was as well, um, through the paper. So be wary of that, especially if you're tracing your lettering through from a page underneath. So you might have spent ages drawing out this really nice piece of lettering that you've pretty much got more or less there and you just need to trace it one more time to refine the lines and you decide to perhaps trace it in ink just be wary that depending on the pen and depending on the paper your ink could soak through and then mess with your line drawing slightly by leaving little blotchy patches on it so that's just one thing to keep in mind but other than that just experiment away with pens really as we're on the topic of pens, I'm going to move on to brush pens now. So there's a kind of a boundary, or a line maybe, <laughs> between brush pens and regular ink pens that you can kind of cross where you can use, as I mentioned, like things like Crayola pens to try and brush letter with, and you can use brush pens to say shade an area in and a specific colour or texture or that sort of thing. So you can merge the two but there are specific pens out there that are intended for brush lettering. Brush pens usually come with three different types of tip. The first type is a synthetic material that looks a little bit almost like foam that the ink kind of soaks into from inside the case of the pen and it's shaped similarly to how the tip of a pencil is shaped when it's sharp just a straight down into a point. Then you've got another synthetic material which is made from thin nylon strands which are kind of held, I think it might be slightly 
using a slight amount of oil or something similar that kind of hold them into this pointed tip shape. And then finally you see brush pens occasionally or sometimes just brushes with, uh, I think it's like horse hair and there's other kinds of hair along those sorts of lines that make up the tip. So you can get some really fine hairs going on on the tip of a, a brush pen like that um, or a, a single kind of brush. Most letterers you will see actually use the first two that I've mentioned, the um, synthetic kind of almost foam-like tip and the nylon strands one because they tend to be a bit easier to get hold of and a bit more cost effective. The ones with animal hair and, and that sort of thing, those tend to be a bit more higher priced so you don't actually see those used as often. Now keeping in mind that you've got those, those main kind of tips that you'll see on a brush pen, those can actually all vary slightly across brush pen manufacturer. So for example, you could take a Pilot brush pen with a synthetic tip and compare it to um, a Tombow one, for example, and you could get quite different results from the two, even though they're made from pretty similar materials. Different brush pens will give different effects. The nibs might be slightly different in size or width, or the material might be just slightly denser or less dense and those can all have quite an effect on your lettering. Now I've always said it um, from very early on and that's because of my own experiences but never just buy one brush pen to start off with and hope that you're going to get some good results from that. You might be lucky <laughs> and you might you might do really well but more often than not you'll find it's kind of it sounds possibly a bit cheesy but that scene in Harry Potter where you kind of like not like it's not quite the same as the one kind of finding you or any one brush pen in the whole world fitting you right but it's it's not far off of that <laughs> um where it will take a couple to, it'll, you have to experiment with a couple really to find one that actually works quite well for you because certain brush pens that letterers, like say big name letterers, might recommend or say, you know, I use this one and it's amazing. You could try that and you might not actually find it works as well for you. You might find that you get on a lot better with a different type of brush pen. You can get ones with hard tips and soft tips. So for example, a well-known letter might say, you know, I get on really well with this hard tip uh, pocket pilot brush pen. And then you try the, the hard tip pocket pilot brush pen. That's quite a, a lot of peace there. <laughs> um, and you might find, actually, you struggle a little bit and it's not working for you. And then you could try the soft pocket pilot brush pen and, and think, ah, actually, no, this is, this is the right brush pen. You know, I'm getting better results with this one. So it's a lot of it is experimentation. I limited myself to just the one brush pen initially when I started trying to brush letter and I, I'd, I'd written it off after a, a couple of hours or so of 
trying to practice I thought okay maybe this is just something I can't do <laughs> where I just wasn't getting very far and what I think had happened was the stationery shop where I bought the brush pen from it's a, a pretty little shop and it's kind of the only one really where I live that sells anything that even vaguely resembles a brush pen and they didn't have many in there at all and the ones that were kind of left were really really far out sort of wacky colours and I thought no I want something relatively neutral so I picked this dark grey one and I found that the tip just you know it wasn't giving me these sort of thin and thick lines like I'd sort of seen in videos and I was you know pretty sure I was getting the technique right but what had happened was the end on it had gone a bit soft and mushy so it had lost its kind of springiness and its flexibility uh, that is a common thing with the sort of the, the kind of the synthetic almost foam like brush pens it can happen as you get better at brush lettering the more you've practiced and the more experience you get it's not really an issue because you just learn to adapt to that and you know what angle you should hold it I mean they do reach a point eventually where you've kind of got to give up on them <laughs> um, where if you know if you're really struggling to get a good difference between thick and thin uh, but on a whole you can get more out of them for longer the more you you've sort of got used to using them but initially I, I tried to use it and I think it wasn't far off this point when I bought it whether perhaps because the type of shop it was you could kind of test pens and things out before you bought them whether it had a little bit of use before I bought it I don't know and that might have worn it down a bit quicker but it seemed to go soft on the end very quickly and I obviously assumed that it was something I was doing wrong um, and I uh, yeah I just assumed I couldn't letter and then I was talking to a friend and explained that I'd been having issues and they were kind enough to gift me one of the Pentel watercolour brush pens and they've got um, the the second type of tip I spoke about, the thin nylon plastic strand tips. And I gave that a go and got on tons better with it, which was encouraging. Because <laughs> like I say, I really did think I just couldn't brush letter and it was so disheartening. And then after a while of practicing with that, I then went back to the brush pen that had the kind of soft end on it and found I got much better results from it so definitely definitely don't stick to one kind of brush pen because you will be limiting yourself and it might not be that pen for you that you'll get on best with so I'd recommend buying at least three to start off with and then they're pretty reasonably priced so you don't have to spend mega bucks out but start with at least three choose a couple of different types of tips from them from different brands so maybe a hard one a medium sized tip just vary it a little bit so you're not buying just three different colors of the same brand and have a practice and you'll be surprised at the different results that the different brush pens will actually provide you so hopefully that's given you a bit of insight into uh, brush pens Hopefully from that you've gathered there is no right or wrong brush pen that you should definitely be using. Just 
just try a few out and, and see what you get on best with. Like brush pens, calligraphy pen holders also come with different options. Sometimes they're also known as calligraphy nib holders, so it's whatever your preference really, whether you prefer calligraphy pen holder or calligraphy nib holder. So, calligraphy pen holders come in two main styles. You've got the straight style, where you just have the holder and then you pop a nib in the end of that. Or there's also the oblique style, where you've got a straight bit going down, and then instead of the nib just going straight into the bottom of that, there's a little kind of arm or extension piece coming off of the side of that. And then the nib goes in there, and that extension piece is at a bit of an angle. And the aim of that is so that you can write at an angle and create things like script calligraphy, without having to either angle yourself too much or your paper too much. So that's the main difference between those two types of holder. A lot of calligraphers that have been doing it a little while do recommend starting with just a straight holder first and then once you've got comfortable using that then moving on to the oblique holder because it can take a little bit of getting used to. So you've got these two main types of holder and then these can come with options of their own. So you can get them from made from different materials, so they can come in plastic or wood. Uh, I think I've even possibly seen some fancy looking metal ones out there at some point. <laughs> so there's, there's quite a variety of uh, design to choose from. You can get ones where there's decorations painted up the sides of them. There really are a lot of styles out there, so you can choose something that suits you and suits your style. There's also um, more premium options where with the um, oblique calligraphy uh, nib holders and I think what I've seen is the little arm extension piece that can be adjustable so that's obviously good if you don't want to be apparently writing at the one sort of same slanted angle forevermore <laughs> but you can just again uh, angle yourself ever so slightly or the pen um, ever so slightly and that will change the angle there so it's not essential it can just be a nice additional feature. You can also get holders with cork uh, very close to where the tip goes in and I think that's designed to give you grip. I didn't actually know that they existed with cork until quite recently uh, one of the lovely group members of the Hand Lettering HQ group that I manage shared a picture of her uh, calligraphy pen holder that she'd painted and I noticed the cork tip on that one and that's then when I first came to uh, know <laughs> that they existed and I think those are designed to be quite good for beginners to start with because you've got something a bit thicker to grip because some calligraphy pen holders can be quite thin and narrow and take a little bit of getting used to if you're used to writing with something a bit thicker. So those are the main things to consider with the actual holder in terms of what type you want and what style you want. And then the last thing to keep in mind is the, the, the end that the nib goes into. So there's usually two different 
options there. One is a kind of a, I'm not sure what the correct name for it is, there probably is a proper name out there for it, uh, but it's got like a cross inside of it on the end, and what looks like, the easiest way to describe it is like um, a flower bud that's not quite started to open up properly yet, so the petals are still just curving over, but there's just a little bit of a gap in the middle. That's what the kind of the inside looks like and that's designed then so that you can slot your calligraphy nib in behind one of these you know, curving over petal shapes and it will clamp it quite tightly in place and it's not all the pieces aren't all joined because then you can put different size nibs in um, and get different angles with the nib. The other kind that the nib will go into is just a round circular cutout shape and that can then limit you on what nibs are compatible with that. So certain nibs will fit in fine and then other nibs will be a bit too curved and narrow and you won't be able to get them in that style of calligraphy holder. Whereas the other one with the kind of cross shape is more or less universal there's not many calligraphy nibs that won't actually go into that. So that's the most important thing to really be aware of if you're buying one. If you're buying one in a shop you can obviously look for that straight away but if you're buying one online it might not be quite so obvious so you might need to read through the description a little bit just to see if there's any mention of the type of end that it has on it. Calligraphy nibs are very similar again to what I said about when buying a brush pen don't just stick to one <laughs> and the same applies to calligraphy nibs as well don't just buy one because you could be again limiting yourself a lot of calligraphers that have been doing it a little while will often recommend the Nyko G nib as being a good starter nib and I definitely agree it is a good nib I've got on really well with it it's probably the nib that I've actually got on best with but I did buy I think it was three different types of nib to begin with another nib that I purchased was a browse I think it's pronounced browse B is B R A U S E and that's a 361 um, which I got on pretty well with but not to quite the same extent as the uh, Nyko G nib. I recently actually went to a calligraphy workshop and we were all given the the Browse 361 nib to use in that workshop. Uh, so Athena from Meticulous Ink who was running that workshop recommended that as being a good beginner's nib and that was her favourite nib. So like I said with the brush pen thing it will vary <laughs> depending what artist you speak to as to what they will recommend as being you know a good nib to start out with and what they get on best with so I think it is a case of doing a little bit of experimentation and finding out what works for you so buy at least a minimum of three nibs they're really cheap I mean in the UK they're generally you can pick them up between about a pound to sort of £1.50, I think in the US that's going to translate to around $2.50 maybe, 
something like that so <laughs> they're, they're not an extortionate outlay and they do last for quite a long time as well so it's definitely worth picking a couple to begin with and practicing and seeing what works best for you uh, so that yeah so there's again no right or wrong nib there it's just down to personal preference inks are something that you will obviously need when <laughs> when doing calligraphy and when it comes to just starting out and basic practice it doesn't matter too much what you use what color you use i always say stick to something neutral like a dark blue or a black something that's not going to distract you too much when you're practicing and starting out but you don't need to worry too much about anything aside from that you can get inks like with the micron pens that are archival so that won't fade over time uh, you can get inks that are slightly thicker or thinner some that will leave a bit of a shiny texture some that will leave a bit of a matte texture you can get gold inks uh, silver inks, white inks, <laughs> there's a lot to choose from uh, but I personally recommend just picking a, perhaps a reputable brand in your country because the type of inks that you can get vary worldwide. The UK you can get things like Windsor and Newton quite easily and they tend to be quite a good reliable ink to use. Um, I I think I read on a site somewhere about using Higgins Eternal Ink. That was a lot harder to track down over here. I did actually manage to find a shop selling it, but there's certain inks that you'll see or read about perhaps online and you just won't be able to get them very easily in the country you live at all. So just find that brand in your country that you know is reputable that other artists are using it. They might not be using it for lettering, they might be using it for illustration or something like that. Um, but as long as you know it's, it's relatively reputable, then you're safe to use it. So that's, that's all there is to consider really. <laughs> With ink, you'll probably be pleased to know. If you do find you buy an ink and it's a little bit thick and you're not getting on too well with it, you can actually, if you pour a little bit out into a jar or something, you can add a tiny bit of water to it just to thin it down. So that can be useful, but obviously if it's the other way round and it's quite thin, then you might perhaps want to look into a different ink that's a little bit thicker if you don't get on with it quite so well. Now I know that's a lot to take in and it's quite a few tools uh, that I've spoken about especially when you include the ones from episode 2 as well. I'm hoping that all of that information is going to give you a really good starting point when you're looking into getting tools or expanding uh, the tools that you do have and I'm hoping as well it's going to save you from some of those experiences where you invest your money or time in tools and only find out that it's been wasted I've definitely gone through that and there's nothing more frustrating where you think that something's going to be useful to you and it turns out that it isn't so I'm hoping that when you listen through to this episode and the last that that will eliminate some of that happening for you that you'll be able to target just the tools that will be useful to you so that, that pretty much does cover most of the hand lettering tools that you're likely to use. So I'm going to move on to equipment. 
I have simplified equipment down. There is more I could talk about, but I really don't want to <laughs> overwhelm you this software and all sorts of things, you know, when you're digitizing, I could go into, but I won't, I won't do that in this episode. So the three main tools that I'm going to talk about are uh, printers and scanners, which I guess could be categorized together and light pads or light boxes. I think they're known as either nowadays. Printers and scanners are quite useful as a lettering artist. They're not essential, you can manage without, but they can come in handy. So when it comes to uh, investing in a printer, if you don't already have one, I wouldn't bother trying to get anything too spectacular. Because when you print your lettering out, if you want it to look really professional, you're better off going to a professional printers and getting it done there because they use different types of printers than what you can generally get from home and you really will notice a different in quality. Most of the time when you do print out lettering it's generally just to either look at it and assess it and see if it's working or not because sometimes seeing it on the screen just you can't always do that as easily with and other times you'll print out just so that you can perhaps trace over and refine what you've done uh, without obviously having to perhaps redraw something it can be useful for that with so that's mainly what you're likely to actually want a printer for it can also be useful in the early stages as well for printing out practice guides and things which I talk about in episode 2 that you can then letter on or trace through and letter on top of but those, those are the main things you're likely to want a printer for. So your standard uh, in the UK, £30, £35 printer, US maybe that's nearly $70 thereabouts. Those, those kind of price range printers are probably going to cover you fine. You're not likely to need anything more fancy than that for printing. When it comes to scanning, you might want to consider... A scanner with a high dots per inch resolution when it comes to scanning. Now I did know these numbers because I've looked into it recently but I cannot now remember them off the top of my head but if you look through the kind of the technical detail sections on um, websites that sell printers and scanners and things like that it will list the scan resolution or have like a maximum scan resolution it'll be something dpi and if you compare and contrast a few you'll be able to see which ones have got slightly higher and lower settings but you'll often find that still within that price range that i mentioned before uh, with the printers you can get printer and scanners combined that will have a good high scan resolution Scan resolution is important because that way then you don't lose detail when you're scanning in lettering work that you've created that you then perhaps want to take on and digitise. That's why it's important. It's not, again, a central you can manage okay without, but if you're looking to either make something quite large or perhaps give something a really good professional look, then it's worth keeping a high resolution in mind when it comes to investing in a scanner. I will note 
not all lettering artists use scanners. Some actually never use them, they just take photos of the lettering work on their phone. And that can be, you know, really quick and easy to just snap a photo and send it over to yourself. The only issue with that sometimes is it's very hard to get a photo exactly square on. Uh, you often get like the size where they slant either kind of slightly like away from you or towards you depending what angle you've taken the photo at so that's just something to be wary of because that can warp your lettering a little bit but you can quite easily get by just taking photos of your lettering work and not scanning it in at all. Light boxes or light pads are essentially just boxes of light. <laughs> the genius of the naming. They are just used for tracing lettering. So if you prefer using tracing paper, you probably haven't actually got a need for using a light box or a light pad. However, if you're not so keen on tracing paper, because I know not everybody is, I, I don't use it too often because I'm not that keen on the texture of it, um, and ink is sometimes a bit smudgy on it as well, then a light box or a light pad could be the way forward. So essentially, it is just a box with light that shines through the top. The top is slightly transparent, but not fully. So the light travels through, but it doesn't blind you at the same time. And you just put whatever you want to trace on top of the box or pad, and then you put a blank sheet on top of that again, and you can easily see your lines through to trace on top of it. They come in different sizes, so you can get little tiny A5 ones, A4 ones, A3 ones, they, they vary in size. The ones that were pretty much around when I was at university were quite chunky, made from wood, quite heavy, you couldn't really move them around too much and if you sit at a desk and work and that's where you always work then there's nothing wrong in getting one of those because you're not going to have to worry about moving it around or anything like that. However, if you're a bit more mobile, you perhaps you haven't got a lot of space and you want to put it away when you're done using it, then it could be worth going down the kind of more the light pad route, as those tend to be a bit thinner nowadays. And more portable, some of them I think you can charge from uh, computers and laptops and that sort of thing. And I think some of them have even got a bit of battery life and built into them, so you don't have to have them connected to a power source when you use them. So there are a few out there. <laughs> uh, it Honestly, it doesn't matter what you use as long as you can see your, your lines through underneath. As an alternative, if you are a bit pushed for cash, you can use a window for a similar effect, but that can be very tricky because Obviously, when you're using a window, you're not at a natural angle that you'd normally draw at. You're also obviously limited to when there's light during the day. So, like now during the winter, it's getting dark here in the UK about four o'clock now, which is um, really limiting the amount of daylight hours. So, if I wanted to try and trace some lettering on my window now, it's pretty much dark outside and I wouldn't see anything through. So a light box is, is worth the investment and they're not too uh, they're not too costly either. 
you might even be able to pick up one of the older wooden ones somewhere perhaps like eBay uh, on the cheap side if you haven't got a big budget there but it's definitely worth considering as part of your lettering toolkit because it can make life easier when you're trying to refine your lettering and you want to get it accurate first time there's nothing worse than trying to just trace through on your desk drawing a bit then having to lift your paper and look at it and see if it's you know the same and then rub it out and readjust it if it's not quite matching up with your original lines underneath. Now you've got lots of lettering tools and equipment to think about I'm going to move on to the inspiration section of this episode. This episode's quote might be a little bit trickier than the one I gave in episode 2 but it still should be good for a beginner as it's sticking to that less than 10 words as a general rule. There's also again like the quote in episode 2 some good words that you can place some emphasis on when you're lettering it out. So the quote's by Sean Astin and it's as follows. There is nothing as special as watching greatness. I really love that quote. I think it's really inspiring. And as I've seen the work that you've been sharing, where you've been lettering these quotes that I've been reading out and recommending, I feel like I've been watching greatness. And it's as simple as that. <laughs> so keep being great. Keep creating great work. Keep sharing your work with me because I love seeing it. It's really inspiring for me to see. Uh, one person in particular has been uh, lettering every quote so far that I've done as part of the podcast, which has been really lovely to see. So if you want to have a look at her work, then you can. So I'm not going to try and pronounce the Instagram username because I'm sure I'm going to get it wrong but I will spell it out and I will definitely put a link to it in the podcast show notes as well so you can quickly find the two uh, quotes that she's lettered so far. So the username is N-U-E-V-E-M-I-L-K-I-L-O-M E-T-R-O-S. So I'll read that one more time just to make sure you get it right. So it's N-U-E-V-E-M-I-L-K-I-L-O-M-E-T-R-O-S. If you do have any trouble finding it though, if you just head on to letterintutorial.com forward slash podcast and click on episode 3 that comes up there then you'll be able to find a link to it directly there so don't worry too much if you didn't catch that then but um, yeah she's been great at, at um, lettering out the quotes that I've said so far and it's really nice to see them come to life in lettering form so have fun with that quote and I look forward to seeing what you create with it if you'd like to share your lettering of a quote with me, you can do that either through Facebook. If you go to facebook.com forward slash lettering tutorial, you can post on the Facebook page there. Otherwise, if you use at lettering on Twitter, you can tag me there. Uh, or otherwise, at lettering tutorial 
on Instagram and you can tag your lettering work there with me in and I'll have a look at it. This episode's inspiring artist is a person named Raul Alejandro. I'm going to apologise now if I've uh, pronounced that wrong. <laughs> I'm, I'm pretty sure that that's how it will be said. Um, Raul has uh, done an awful lot of lettering and has a pretty huge following. Uh, he recently put up a piece of work uh, which was, I thought, really clever. And the lettering on it is Weather the Storm. Now, if you go onto Roll's Instagram account, which you can find at draw, so that's D-R-A-W underscore U-L, and you can have a look at a little bit of the process involved with the making of that lettering piece. I think it's just a great example of some lettering work because you get to watch him lay the lettering down. It's just a simple uh, black monoline piece of lettering with a Sharpie pen. He just gets it in really nicely first time. The lettering is on a, I think he printed it out from the looks of the video, a background of raindrops on a surface. And it's just really effective uh, in conjunction with the lettering. Often when you see lettering, people put it, they digitise it and then put it on top of like a photograph background. Whereas he's kind of taken that a stage further and printed out. I assume it's a photo, it could be some really impressive pencil uh, drawing, but I think it's a photo and he's printed that out and then lettered on top of it, which is a bit of a brave step really, because obviously if you mess up you've got to then reprint it and do it again, whereas obviously when you just do the lettering out and then put it on a photo, you haven't really got to worry too much there, you can just keep repeating the lettering until you get it right. I think he's certainly an inspiring person to look into. Uh, he's done, like I say, an awful lot of lettering work and he specialises in most areas of lettering as well. So you'll see a lot of brush lettering on his Instagram page. There's also a lot of illustrative lettering. So I think you can gain an awful lot from him. And like I say, he shows videos as well um, on Instagram of his lettering process. So I think he's definitely worth checking out. Um, as is his Weather the Storm lettering piece. Uh, I will, um, as I did with the, the previous mention of an Instagram artist, I will pop links to, um, to Raul on the show notes page so you'll be able to find his Instagram account easily and I'll pop a link to this piece of work as well so you can find that too. If you want to jump straight to this episode's show notes without having to go to letteringtutorial.com and then look for podcasts in the menu or um, by typing podcast uh, into the website address as well, you can just go straight to letteringtutorial.com forward slash hand lettering podcast three and that will take you directly to the show notes for this episode. Each episode I create that number just goes up. So last episode, uh, the show notes were forward slash hand lettering podcast two. So <laughs> hopefully that's pretty straightforward for you to find the show notes then for a specific episode. For this episode, I've got a bit of a multi-part question to try and approach this time. So what I'm gonna do is I'll read it all out and then I'll do my best to answer the questions that it's kind of made up of and I'll try and answer those in order as well. 
So this question or set of questions is all around practice and it comes from uh, Renata from the USA. So Renata said, I'm having trouble moving forward with my hand lettering. I've been seriously practicing hand lettering for over a year now. And at this point, I feel a little stuck slash bored with my work. It seems like I'm not making much progress. Can you help shed some light in my darkness? 1. How do you practice? 2. How do you practice a specific style that you're not very good at without getting bored? 3. Do you think hand lettering is a worthwhile endeavour or is it just another design trend that will die with more technology? 4. Do you consider hand lettering to be more on the design or illustration side. Seems like some of the best known letterers are illustrators. Any help will be much appreciated. Thank you and have an awesome day. Well, thank you for your question or questions, Renata. There's quite a lot in there to, <laughs> to try and approach, but I will definitely do my best to answer those and hopefully uh, give you a bit of um, help and insight into these sort of issues. Starting with question one then, how do you practice? So this I think will be different for nearly every artist. There's bits that will be the same, like you sit down with some paper or a pencil <laughs> or whatever, but different people have got different habits and routines when it comes to practice. And it is a case of finding something that really works well for you. When I was at university and we used to have to do life drawing, uh, we would be encouraged to experiment with different ways of drawing the life models. So sometimes that was sat on the floor with a piece of paper in front of us. Sometimes it was a case of taping your paper to the wall and drawing upright, you know, completely vertical against the wall. Sometimes it was sat at an easel, like a bench easel, with your artwork kind of up on a slight slant. Sometimes it was using an easel where you were stood up. And I found I was definitely the most comfortable sat on the floor, which <laughs> I think I was one of the few that were actually like that. Everybody else obviously preferred sitting at an easel, but I was much happier on the floor. And I've also found, as I've experimented with practice as well, that I don't practice or I don't create great artwork when I'm sat somewhere deadly silent and I'm sat somewhere a bit uncomfortable as well, so like a kind of a hard chair. Interestingly, some of the best um, pencil illustrations I've done have actually been from me kind of curled up with a sketchbook on my lap on my sofa. So <laughs> um, I think a big part of practice and how you practice is very personal to you. And it is a case of experimenting um, with location and environment so that you feel really comfortable because some artists will work at their best in a completely plain white room with no distractions, maybe, you know, no window, nothing. And, you know, that's my idea of a kind of a worst nightmare as an artist, to just be in a kind of a cold room with a hard chair and nothing going on around me. Um, but like I say, so, you know, that's how some people will work at their best. So I think pay attention to your environment, just because, you know, some artists 
use a sort of a professional easel or sit at a desk doesn't necessarily mean that that's how you need to to work if, you know if you want to get the best out of you so that's one thing to keep in consideration with how do you practice uh, the other thing I generally think is important as well is to not have distractions in the sense of lots of tasks to do whilst you're practicing I find so things when I say tasks I mean things like perhaps housework or you know you've maybe got to go to work in half an hour or that sort of thing I find when you've got those things playing on your mind that's generally where your focus goes when you're practicing it's often actually better if you can to get those things done first and then practice after when you've got more kind of clarity going on in your head and less to sort of worry about and you know less places for your mind to wander so that's another thing to to keep in mind it's obviously not possible for everybody sometimes your schedule sort of just get in the way and you have to fit practice in wherever you can but if that is an option for you then that's definitely worth considering is you know clear your schedule first and then practice other than that I probably practice like every other artist does just a bit of paper pencil and I sit and I work and sometimes I don't practice for very long and then sometimes I will sit for two or three hours I think you just need to kind of tune in with yourself a little bit and you'll start to get a feel for how long you kind of should be practicing for it is very difficult when you're starting out or sometimes you know even if you've been doing it for example uh, Renata you said you've been doing it for about a year now just over a year and it can take time to kind of build up that internal um, relationship with yourself where you know you know this is enough practice for today even if I work more and do another hour I'm not going to make any progress because today it's just you know it's just not happening I mean you can keep forcing yourself to <laughs> to work but sometimes you know you do need to just call it a day and you know start again tomorrow or you know the next possible opportunity there definitely I think is such a thing as over practicing um, perhaps some people will disagree with me but I think you can reach a point where if you've got too tired uh, you just it won't actually be your best work and you are better off just putting your pencil pens down and then coming back to it fresh-mindedly the next day so I'm hoping <laughs> that that's given you a, a bit of a, an insight into how do you practice. The last thing I would probably say is just make sure all your tools are accessible as well because again you don't want that distraction as such of having to you know start lettering then get up and get some more tools out that you realise you need, sit down do a bit more then realise you need something else and get up and you know that doesn't help your flow of practice really if you can't you know continually interrupting it it's nice to just be able to grab the tool you want carry on grab the next one carry on so yeah keep those things in mind and i hope that might perhaps give you a bit more insight into practice and by all means talk to other artists too um different letterers will tell you about their different experiences in terms of practice so mine on my methods will 
like I say, vary to other letterers. But you'll probably hopefully find something that inspires you that you think, oh, I might like to try practicing like that. Give it a try and you might find that that actually works quite well for you too. So a reminder of question two again. Question two was how do you practice a specific style that you're not very good at without getting bored? So that's a pretty good question and I can really clearly remember when I was um, at school kind of pre higher education level doing art then and you get assigned all sorts of different things to draw at that sort of level of art where the teachers you're not at that point where the teachers kind of trust you to choose your own <laughs> topics or things to focus on so they assign you stuff and you know what's interesting to them isn't always interesting to kind of a 13 or 14 year old student so I can very well remember how difficult it could be at times to to draw something especially that I potentially found a bit boring um so the question is, how do you practice a style that you're not very good at without getting bored? So the best thing to do is make it personal to you. So if you see somebody's perhaps lettered a specific word or something like that in a style that you're interested in, don't immediately think, oh, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to letter that same word because that word might not be even in the least bit relevant to you. And then when you come to try and letter that, you might find you struggle whereas if you pick a word that's really significant to you you're going to have a little bit more investment in what you're doing so that is definitely one of the first things I would say about something that you know you're worried about getting bored at make it personal to you because you are less likely to get bored than by trying to letter that style another thing that you can do as well is um, look at variations of that style so don't just stick to the one exact same style forevermore whilst you're trying to master it i mean for example if say the style you were looking to try and get better at was brush lettering and you didn't want to get bored at brush lettering there's so many different ways that you can brush letter words and they can look the styles look different nearly every letter it will letter things in brush slightly different to you know another letterer just because everybody's got their own kind of way of writing and their own style but it's important to look for those alternative styles and then see if you can mirror those a little bit because that varies things up slightly and you're not then just essentially repeating the same thing over and over and over again you're varying it which is important um, for not getting bored and it also doesn't hurt as well to break away from the style that you're learning. So say you've done a week of trying to learn brush lettering, change things up. So do, you know, maybe some illustrative lettering for a couple of days and come back to the brush lettering again. Give yourself a break. You are allowed to. Some people kind of fall into the mindset of I've got to learn this. I must just do nothing but, you know, brush letter for months and months and months until I get it right. And you can, you know, it's the same applies with food, doesn't it? If you ate the same food every single day, you would get fed up of it. So it doesn't hurt to take a break for a day or two here and there. You don't want to leave too long a gap because that can kind of undo perhaps a little bit of what you've kind of achieved with your practice. 
one or two days every now and then don't hurt at all and it's quite healthy to take a little break. Question three now then. Do you think hand lettering is a worthwhile endeavour or is it just another design trend that will die with more technology? I most definitely think it's a worthwhile endeavour. I might be a little bit biased, but no, I, I certainly do. I think any kind of creative skill really is worth investing time in. You don't necessarily have to take hand lettering to a professional level. It can be a personal hobby and that's something you can do for the rest of your life. You can have that time to just sit and create and chill out. And that can be really nice. If you reach that kind of age, you might already reached it, you might be past it now, but where suddenly all your friends start having babies and getting married and things like that, it can be useful then for helping to create, you know, personalised hand-lettered gifts and things like that, or invitations, there's all sorts of things that can be done there. So you can put your skills to good without necessarily being professional. I think that's, a, that's the point I'm kind of trying to make there. Although you have got that other option of going professional with it. And I still, at the, at the moment, I mean, things could change as years go by. It, it is difficult to predict how the future is going to go. But there's thousands of people out there looking for hand lettering. And there are a lot of hand letterers out there now, and there's more appearing every day. But there's still a big market for hand lettering. And I think people are realising again that things with a hand-lettered look can be a bit warmer, can appeal more to clients or customers, and it can make people stand out as being a bit more individual, because I suppose the one disadvantage to using kind of digital typefaces, I mean, especially if you take perhaps the kind of the Google fonts that you can get, they're very accessible they're very straightforward to install on a website and they're very very commonly used and I mean there was one that I kind of when I discovered Google fonts the uh, it's called the railway font I really love that when I discovered it and I did have it on a website at one point and I don't know a good 20 to 30 percent of the websites that I'll come across now or use railway and I'm so so fed up of kind of seeing it now where it's just so accessible and you know commonly used whereas hand lettering adds that personal touch where you know you're not going to see the same piece of lettering anywhere else on the web which is what I think stands out about it and why more and more people are becoming kind of attracted to using it because they realise it's going to give them their project some individuality again. So I I don't think it's going to to die anytime soon. I think the more perhaps technology grows, there's probably going to be a bit more of a need for it because people are there's more and more kind of startups like business startups happening where they're looking for branding and identity more and more mobile apps being created every day where they may, might be looking for that you know hand-lettered piece of work to make their stand out as being different to the next app there's plenty of opportunity out there at the moment and I think probably will be for the next five to ten years I can't really predict <laughs> much past that because it's um yeah it's hard to tell where technology will go but 
Um, I think it is a worthwhile endeavour and it's certainly worth investing time in whether you just want to do it for personal reasons or whether you want to do it for professional reasons. The last question Renata asks is, do you consider hand lettering to be more on the design or illustration side? Seems like some of the best known letterers are illustrators. I think a lot of it comes down to the type of lettering that you're creating and also the types of projects that you ideally want to be working on. So some projects you can get by, I think fine, without much in the way of illustration skills. If, for example, you just plan on focusing around maybe brush lettering, for example, you could produce some, you know, really nice brush lettered phrases or logos, branding, all that sort of thing without actually needing illustrative skills. However, I think it certainly can help to have them as many businesses, if you are looking to kind of go professional with lettering, many businesses, when they want branding done, they won't just want the name of their company lettered, they might want some form of iconography or a logo to go with that. So if you can offer the whole package, then that's, you know, going to be more beneficial to you and other people looking to work with you. Design, I think, comes into all elements of lettering whether it's brush lettering, calligraphy, or illustrative hand lettering. You'll find that when, even when you just write out a word in, in a, say, a brush pen, you'll think about where you're placing that word on the page, you'll think about the spacing, the heights of the letters, and the style of those letters, and that all falls into design. When you're, say, writing something out in calligraphy, maybe it's a quote that goes over three or four lines on the page, you'll put some form of design into that because you'll think about where you want those words to be placed and you'll want them, well, most of the time <laughs> people want them to look kind of even and, um, you know, for the quote to flow. And that's all elements of design. So I think all lettering definitely includes design to some extent. And there are obviously elements from, you know, if you've previously perhaps specialised in graphic design, there's elements of that that you can pull over and into hand lettering and vice versa. So design, I think, is kind of already there. And illust illustration and illustrative skills are something that can be there, um, but perhaps aren't always there. But I do think will make things easier for you if you do have to some extent. You don't need to be the world's best, most realistic illustrator uh, to, you know, to create illustrations to go with your lettering. Having illustrative skills, I think, will open more doors for you and also give you a better mental bank to draw from when you're creating illustrative hand lettering because the stronger your illustration skills doesn't really matter what you illustrate that's going to reflect in your illustrative hand lettering in the long term the more you practice so I think it's definitely worth focusing a bit of time on illustration whether it's relating to lettering or not because they do, I think they do go hand in hand.
those four questions have been really good ones. Uh, they've certainly raised some things that I suspect not just Renata's perhaps encountered or experienced. I'm sure some of you listening to this as well have perhaps come across some issues with practice or maybe even questioned where the future can go for a letterer or what skills you might need in addition. So I hope that's helped shed a little bit of light on some of those things, given you a bit more information, a bit more to think about on those areas. I think it probably is time to bring this episode to an end. Thank you so much for listening through to the end of this episode with me. I really, really do appreciate it. I mentioned near the beginning about how I had positive comments about the series so far and I really love it when I get the comments from you saying that you've listened to something which I know is pretty close to the end so I know you, you've been listening all the way through. It just it means a lot to me and it's great to hear that I'm not boring you <laughs> early on into the episode. Um, as I mentioned also at the beginning of the episode, um, if you've enjoyed it, please do feel free to leave an honest review and rating in iTunes or in Stitcher if you listen on Android, as that's going to really help for others to find the episodes and the podcast series. I'll see you again soon for another episode. Thank you again for listening and bye for now.